Thanks for joining us at Colts to Consciousness. This storytelling podcast is meant to be for entertainment purposes only and does not substitute for any medical advice. We may discuss triggering topics and we ask that you make your personal mental health a priority. Lastly, the opinions of our guests do not necessarily reflect the opinions of the host. Before we begin, I would also like to add a trigger warning for anyone who is sensitive to certain topics. We will be discussing child assault, not in detail, but we will be touching on part of that because it is part of a big part of Daisy's story. So please take care when you're watching this video. Pause it, take a breath if you need to, or we will add timestamps so that you can skip around and skip over the parts that you may not be comfortable hearing or watching. I was treated as the villain in my own childhood trauma, and it was publicized to the point where I was bullied about it for probably a decade. And a lot of public Scientologists wrote KRs about me, making me as a 12-year-old out to be the instigator, which resulted in my family and I being brought in by the church, being sat down, and my parents were essentially told that they could either send me away to a Scientology school for bad kids, or they could keep me on 24-7 monitoring until a plan could be worked out so that I could reinstate myself into good standing. Hey, my name is Shalise Ansola, and this is Cults to Consciousness, where we discuss leaving high-demand religions and organizations and finding healing and independence through awareness and true individual sovereignty. If you're only listening and you want to see our faces, go to my YouTube channel at Cults to Consciousness, where you can join in on the conversation, comment, like, subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. And our guest today, I'm so happy she reached out. She is from the Church of Scientology, and we've done a few episodes on this. I wanted her to tell her story because we're going to really get into the nitty gritty of what happens when you are a child in Scientology, kind of like we did with Danny's episode. So I'm just going to bring her on so we can get right into it. Thank you so much for joining us, Daisy. Hello. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. So Daisy, before we start, what is it that you want everyone to know? What's your over overarching message about your story specifically? I think it's really important that people understand that my story isn't the exception. It's not made up in any way for attention. If anything, when I tell my story, um, I often tend to reduce what's happened to make it more palatable. Mm. I think a lot of people who go through what I've been through tend to feel an immense amount of shame that keeps them from wanting to speak out. And when when being in a cult and we, being raised in the environment that I was raised in is all you know, you don't really realize how bad it is until you're out of it. Mm. And you find a lot of ways to make excuses or to think that there was just something wrong with you rather than really stepping back and accepting if someone else told me this story and it was not about something that I had a prejudice about, how would I treat them? How I, would I regard them? What would I think about their story? Yeah. And I think that's why it's so important for people to come on and talk about their stories to not only make other people not feel so alone, but to shed some light on what's actually going on in the world. I'm sure we've all driven by Scientology buildings and seen the Sea Org members walking the streets and everything seems okay from the outside. But And maybe it is in some cases. But what we're trying to do here on Cults to Consciousness is really just show people that that's not always the case. And not to always put a negative spin on things, but we're not here to talk about the happy, sweet things that went on. We're here to expose the stuff that people don't like to talk about and they like to bury in the shadows. So let me just say right now, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your story. Is this the first time you've publicly shared your story? Yes, this is the first time I've publicly talked about any of this. 
<sighs> Definitely send you my love. <laughs> I know it can be hard, but we're here to just have a, a loving conversation. This is a safe space to share. So let's start from the beginning. Your parents, did they grow up in Scientology? Uh, no, both of my parents are or were Jewish and were raised Jewish. My dad more strict than my mom. And they found Scientology and then each other uh, about a decade before I was born. Okay, so you were born into it. Yes. From doing other interviews with Scientologists, specifically Aaron Smith-Levin, when we did this whole episode on why Scientologists don't believe in children, it really paints the picture as to why being a child in Scientology can be problematic and really difficult for those children. So I would love for you to talk about your personal experience from as early as you can remember and how much your parents were actually involved in your life. When you grow up in Scientology, you quickly learn that you are a lower priority to your family than their religion. Um, from a very, very young age, I remember consistently being around Celebrity Center, consistently being at the various Scientology buildings, whether it was for events or whether it was because my parents were there for services. Um, before I even, you know, was barely walking, I was, <laughs> present in these buildings up until the point that I, you know, was walking, talking, becoming a little person, at which point I was starting to receive services uh, about the age of seven or eight is when I started doing courses and auditing. Um, you know, at that age, you, you're barely learning about life. So formative years, being integrated into a high demand religion where you are taught that this is the only way that the planet will be saved, mm. that Scientology is the only solution to mankind's problems. And there is an immense amount of propaganda, money and efforts put into their public services like the volunteer ministers and things like that, CCHR, where they are showing that they care and showing that they're helping people to remove focus from all of the dangerous things that they're doing, including teaching uh, parents that by the age of seven is when a child, aka just an immortal being in this new child body, um, should begin to rem remember their past lives and begin to show up as like a fully fledged human with all of their abilities and memories and uh, recall. And around the age of seven specifically is when I started to really experience um, trauma, both from being involved in Scientology and from feeling the disconnect from my parents, from their focus on Scientology rather than focus on helping me become a person and understand how to interact with others, understand how to do things for myself. Um, I was consistently told that I can do anything, but that also meant that if I say, I don't know how to do this, or I can't, or I need help, that I was chastised for that and instead um, encouraged to figure it out myself. I remember frequently my entire life being told that I'm not allowed to say I can't and I have to figure it out. Mm -hmm. And now being 30 years old, of course, I've just skipped forward over 20 years. I've, I'm sort of filling in these huge blanks as I get to, you know, I'm in therapy now and I'm also relating to other people my age and their experiences growing up and realizing not only did I experience a lot of horrible things, but there's so much I didn't get. There is so much that my friends got as children and provide to their children that I never got from my parents. And I didn't realize until recently how deeply that is ingrained in me and affected me um, and my, my mental health, my well-being, all of the facets of who I am. I've had to build that for myself because I did not get that in the way many people get from their parents. 
That must have been so difficult. Now that you do have that perspective, being able to look back and see what was missing, what are some of those specific things that you can help us understand what your life was like as a child? That's a great question. Um, I think a lot of it is a deep love and admiration and encouragement that I see people giving to their kids. A sort of, Mm. let me help you figure this out. Let me give you the space to learn and to grow. And there's not an expectation that little kids will know how to do everything right the first time. And they are not generally chastised or made to feel bad if they don't do something right. Mm -hmm. I was also tasked with an enormous amount of, of, of chores and physical labor that I don't think most kids have. Of course, every kid, you know, might help around the house in some way and might be shown how to do certain things. It felt like an enormous weight on my shoulders of how much responsibility I have, including being taught LRH's definition of responsibility, which essentially teaches you that you're not only responsible for everything you do and the effects that you create, you're also responsible for everything that happens to you and for all of the things and people around you. So from a very young age, I became uh, essentially responsible and almost a caretaker to my own parents instead of being parented by my parents. I, If I did or said anything to upset them, if they became upset in my vicinity, um, it was my job to make them feel better and to regulate their emotions when I did not have anyone offering that sort of emotional support to me. Yeah. How early do you remember having to do that for your parents? At what age? My personal memory, I would say about six or seven, but I actually found um, a, you know, a, a baby diary some parents keep when their their kid is young and it has memories from my child's birth and memories from my child's first few years. And there is a specific memory my mom wrote about from the age of two years old um, when our family bird had died. And I was very upset. And my mom was also very upset. And rather than comforting me that our family bird had died, um, I took care of my mom and comforted her. Oh, wow. That's just so much to put on a child. That's That never should have been your responsibility. And I can't imagine the weight that you had to carry because of that. We had a guest on here. Her name is Kelly. And she spoke about how her parents blamed her for their bickering or fighting between the two of them. Did you have anything like that happen to you where you were seen as a suppressive person is what they call it? I don't know if that word was ever used or that term was ever used, but I definitely felt the weight, especially from my dad. My dad's perspective was constantly trying to fix me, constantly trying to make me be different than I was, including and not limited to feeling that I was responsible not only for them fighting, but anytime, you know, my mom and I would get in a disagreement or my mom would be upset about an interaction that she had with me. My dad would decide that I, I'm the problem. I just shouldn't be there. I should go home uh, right up until literally his death. And, um, I had taken care of him in the hospital after he was diagnosed with cancer. Um, I had to come back home to where I live and I was told, um, that I shouldn't come back due to just health concerns, which I later found out was actually because my dad's belief was that I am responsible for all of the, quote, interbulation in, inside of my family and that me being there would be upsetting to my mom and would therefore be upsetting to him. So I was not allowed to come oh back gosh. to see my dad before he passed. I'm so sorry. Thank you. Oh, I... Is there anything specific that you would like to bring up about your childhood to kind of help people understand the inner workings of Scientology? (sighs) There's a lot. Um, Unfortunately, I experienced um, sexual assault multiple times um, at young ages. 
um, both both perpetrators being adult Scientologists. Um, the second incident be, uh, took place when I was 12 years old. Um, and it turned into a public debacle due to some of some of what happened was publicized and a lot of public Scientologists um, wrote KRs about me, basically making me as a 12 year old out to be the instigator of mm. the incidents that occurred, which resulted in my family and I being brought in by the church, being sat down and my parents um, being given copies of previous over and withhold write-ups that I had done as part of my services unrelated to these incidents, as well as the KRs that I had written and the KRs that had been written against me. And my parents were essentially told that they could either send me away to a Scientology school for bad kids, or they could keep me on 24-7 monitoring until uh, a plan could be worked out so that I could reinstate myself into good standing. And I was treated as the the villain in my own childhood sexual trauma. And it was publicized to the point where I was bullied about it for probably a decade. I was sent away to the Scientology boarding school where I stayed for two to three years. <sighs> so still in my formative childhood years from about the age of 12 to 15, I was away from my family in really horrible conditions and I was regularly made to take accountability for my own abuse, was made to look at how I was responsible for it, how I caused it. And I was at no point given any type of compassion, support, grace, therapy, anything that would have actually helped me um, work through what I experienced. Unfortunately, experienced further sexual trauma while being there oh my gosh this this is unbelievable and it makes me so angry that you had to go through that so if i may sum this up to make sure i'm understanding correctly you were assaulted and then people wrote up krs which are knowledge reports to say that you did something wrong to pull this in your parents were called in saying that you were responsible for what had happened to you and they could either put you on 24-7 watch or send you away. They chose to send you away to a different state where you were put in the position to experience more sexual assault and not receive any sort of care or therapy to help you understand it. Yeah. Yep. Daisy, I am... I am so sorry. That is just, it's hurting my heart. And especially as someone who has also experienced sexual assault, I just, I can't imagine having to go through that. And even just you being able to be here and tell your story is so brave of you. And just thank you for for being so open. And it is really important that people understand that this type of thing happens. And like you said, it's not, <clears throat> it's not uncommon. And people need to start recognizing the traumas and the things that are going on behind the scenes. I know many people could say, well, sexual assault happens everywhere. Yes, but what we're speaking to is how you were essentially victim blamed and told that it was your fault. And all of that was because of this religion and because of these principles that were written down by L. Ron Hubbard, who claimed to know everything. And because of his teachings, you're having to suffer and not just you, so many other people who are living under these same type of rules and restrictions and guidelines. <sighs> just want to take a deep breath here for a second. 
Have you been able to get help for this now? Have you been able to understand that this was not your fault and unwind the programming and see this for what it was, which is you being victimized? The short answer is yes. I have been in therapy for many years now uh, against my family's objections. Uh, but unfortunately, a lot of the indoctrination is so deeply wired that I'm, I may truly be unwiring it for the rest of my life. Um, I am in a very supportive um, sexual assault survivor support group. Good. And I actually have taken some of my own measures to offer that type of support to others in teaching people, especially children, about um, their own consent and boundaries. Of course, mm -hmm. it's very different when you are in a organization that protects its own, forbids any type of legal action, forbids you from talking about things like this. But um, it's very important to me to reach as many people as I can, especially those who are younger, who may have experienced something like this, whether it's in or out of a religious space, to let people know that no matter what people tell you, it's it's not your fault. There only is one person at fault for anything like this, and that is the perpetrator themselves, and in some cases, mm. an organization or environment that is protecting them. Absolutely. I'm so happy that you've been able to get in support groups like that and even extend help to other people as well. And again, just by sharing your story today, I think it's going to help a lot of people not feel so alone in their their own struggles. Um, and I don't want to live in the, uh, the assault world for too long. I know that's hard to talk about. I think it's important that we mentioned it. I'd like to move on to what it was like being at that specific camp. What what were the living arrangements like? Were you isolated? Were you able to go out into the world? Kind of paint us a picture of what that was like in your teen years. Uh, so essentially, uh, I was a boarding school in the middle of nowhere, about two and a half hours away from Albuquerque, New Mexico. We lived in shared dormitories. The girls were in one and the boys were in another. It was truly some of the worst years of my life, um, physically and emotionally traumatizing the amount of physical labor that was required um, in under the name of teaching us how to live a better life. But really, it was just child labor. It was horrible. And actually speaking with a couple of other people in my recent years who were there at different times than me, there was so much overlap of some of the things that I experienced, such as uh, very inappropriate conversations and interactions with the camp counselors or the people who worked there, uh, the ways that I was spoken to and um, like we touched on victim blames, but really it was a very aggressive approach towards children who, in my opinion, the m main reason why a child acts up, if you want to call it that, is due to the environment that they're being raised in or their their parents. Of course, there are exceptions to that. But typically, if a child is behaving in a way that is um, unusual um, harmful or destructive in some way, it's because their needs aren't being met or they're being treated badly. So I was in this environment around a bunch of kids who were traumatized, who had been through things I probably won't ever know, and who were all sent to this place. And every day was horrible. Uh, I, I personally have chronic illnesses. I have a neurological disease and an autoimmune illness, which I've had my whole life. And there were no allowances made for things like, you know, I don't feel well today. I can't get up at eight in the morning or I don't feel well today. My hands and my feet are completely swollen from my allergies. I can't do physical labor. It was a lot of um, treating anything that that you experienced or brought up as excuses, constantly being in trouble, constantly being monitored, having your stuff gone through, having your stuff stolen, um, no privacy, 
being, I was mercilessly bullied by other kids my age to the point that, you know, I'm still, I'm still working on some of those things in therapy now, which it's been, you know, closer Mm -hmm. to 20 years. Yeah. I can't even imagine being in a situation like that and how difficult that must have been, especially under the guise of anything that you're experiencing that is uncomfortable is your fault. It's just layer upon layer upon layer of trying to just exist in this world in a happy way where you're forcing yourself probably to be positive and be happy even though you weren't just so that you wouldn't get in trouble for it. What were some of the things that they would force you to do physical labor-wise? Because these were all kids. This was a boarding school for kids. Yes. Uh, There's a lot of cleaning, cooking, taking care of the horses, you know, scooping horse poop, washing the horses. Um, Basically, there were chores or tasks that you were assigned. Sometimes they rotated based on the day or the week. Sometimes there were just simply things that you always were expected to do. Sort of uh, reminiscent of what you would see on, in a boot camp on on TV. Of course, it's not the same thing, but it definitely reminds me of, you know, this is how you need to keep your space and this is how you need to keep yourself and this is how you're expected to clean everything and con- contribute Okay. Were you having any contact with your parents at this time? Did they understand everything you were going through? I did talk to my parents. I They would call me during certain periods. We were There was no cell phone service and no cell phones allowed, but there was a phone oh. that was in the dining room. So during certain hours, uh, people were allowed to use the phone with a phone card or your, your parents could call you, but it was definitely intermittent and Again, during very important formative years of my life, not being around or having much contact with my parents, um, I, we were allowed to go home for a couple of days every so often, like, you know, a few times a year. And there were a lot of strict rules that we had to follow during that time, such as what we were allowed to eat, what we were allowed to watch, but it really wasn't a lot of time. And of course, um, my parents expected me to do things around the house during that time. And since I was often in trouble, a lot of the time spent during those days was very uncomfortable. It, it was not a warm reception and them being so excited to have me home. Oh, wow. Literally does feel like you were in the military in some way, not being able to go home when you needed to or call home when you needed to. I think you had mentioned in our conversations previously that your grandmother had passed away and you weren't allowed to go back home for that. Yeah, both my grandma and my childhood cat, who I loved with my whole heart, both passed away um, while I was gone. And during one of my visits home, my mom told me about it. Um, And I remember her later commenting that I was not upset enough that she found it strange that I was not upset enough, that I was more upset about my cat than my grandma dying. But really, being emotional in any form that wasn't happiness was labeled as being misemotional and that all emotions other than happiness were labeled as bad emotions. If Mm -hmm. you're sad, if you're having grief, if you're angry, if you're frustrated, anything that you're doing to get through a difficult day, that's all seen as negative. Right. So I bottled up a lot for a long time and there was no room to process any of that because I'm going through active trauma. So when, at what point did you start to question the way that you are living? Because as someone who was also raised in a cult, I know it's your reality. It's what you know. It doesn't really make sense to question it because everyone around you is doing it and your parents do it and it's just that's how things are. But there usually comes a point where you can't pretend everything is okay anymore and the walls start to crack open and you start to see things for what they really are. When did that happen for you? So I'll answer this in two parts. The first one is 
I think I had questions for a number of years before those walls came in, being that Scientology is a it's a widely joked about topic, right? From South Park to other shows, there are frequently jokes made about it. So it is, it is a religion that people frequently misunderstand. They joke about the volcanoes. They joke about this and that. But really the truth of it is, is if you are in it, you are forbidden from a talking about it in any way other than a positive light. And you are also forbidden from using the internet or any other type of, um, you're not allowed to research it at all. You're not allowed to read or hear anything that anyone has said because they will simply tell you that that's um, what's called black PR, which is essentially they're saying that anyone who speaks out against it has their own overts and withholds, their own things that they're hiding and they're trying to... Mm. Um, create propaganda mm-hmm. against the wonderful things that they're doing to save the world. And so you're ingra- it's ingrained in you like that there's a, you're not allowed and B there's no purpose in looking outside of what, you know, the way that I refer to it as it's like having a literal neon sign on your head that everyone else can see, but you. Right. Around the age of 12, 13, being at that school, I was deeply traumatized to the point of feeling like this isn't right. This isn't okay. But again, I didn't have, I didn't really have access to the internet and I didn't really have anyone to talk to until I (laughs) moved away again and joined staff at the age of 15. The things I started to experience while on staff were so horrifying that I something broke in me and I went to the internet and I started researching. I started reading accounts specifically from other um, either escaped Scientologists or people who were under the radar who were hiding the fact that they were mentally checked out but still had to stay in for their family or their job or whatever else and it started to make me realize that my experiences, again, were not an exception, that there are so many parallels, that all of these people cannot possibly be conspiring, that all of these people cannot possibly just have have things that they're, that they're feel guilty about. They're not all trying to trash this wonderful religion that they are actually horribly traumatized and shamed into silence and not only was I able to read those accounts, but I was able to have personal conversations with some people who offered me a small bit of compassion and perspective and illustrated that there is a life beyond it. Because when you grow up that way, it is intentionally built to keep you in this box where all of your friends, all of your family, your employer or your family's employer, everything you know is connected. So if you dared to question it or leave, you lose everything. So speaking to other people who had been able to leave, whether in part or in whole, and know that A, their experiences made sense to me, and B, that there is a life after it, Um by that point, I was completely mentally checked out and um, I continued and finished my staff contract only for the purpose of um, not getting declared because if I got, you know, if I left staff midway, I would have been declared and then my parents would have been declared. And then at the age of, you know, 15, 16, I would have had parents deciding whether or not they wanted to continue being my parents or whether I would have lost them. So that was how my discovery and the realization set in. And once you had that discovery, once you recognized that this is something you could no longer do, but you had to essentially pretend to continue doing it, where did you go from there? So where were you living when you were 15 and you were on staff? In Ohio. And do you have to continue your contract in Ohio or did you move around? No, at that time, I stayed at the org that I was at, and I did complete my contract there. So you completed the contract. How many years was that? Or was it 
years, months when you decided you couldn't do it, but you had to finish? I was on staff for two and a half years. So from the age of 15 until just before my 18th birthday. Okay. And so at 15 is when you decided you didn't want to do it and you had to continue until you were 18. Mm -hmm. That's it's a long time to continue and staying in. How are you feeling during that time period? I to add a little bit of context, I when I first realized Mormonism was not the way to go. I'm like, yeah, I can keep going though. Like even though I don't really believe it, I'll make friends. And once I made that distinction and I call it when the goggles came off and I went to church with a new perspective, I was disgusted and I couldn't listen to any of the lessons and I just wanted to get up and scream at everyone like, how can you still believe this? So I'm wondering if that was similar for you when you had to sit there and pretend like everything was fine for two years. Yeah, I think especially since I was actually starting to become mentally checked out before that time, um, part of the reason that I actually went on staff is because my home life as I've described, was so tumultuous and I felt so unsupported. And to add on to that, my mom um, was diagnosed with a terminal illness during this time. And so mm. I basically felt like there was no place for me in my own home, having already had a bad home life, having been sent away to a boarding school, and then being given basically this... It wasn't even really an option. It was kind of like again, sort of similar to being sent away. It was like, well, you could go join staff somewhere or you can live under this microscope at home by, you know, one parent who is physically unwell and another parent who is taking care of that parent. By the time I went and joined staff, I hadn't, you know, fully unlocked everything, but I was, I didn't want to be there. And so being there learning what I'd learned, and then unfortunately, experiencing and observing the things I did while I was on staff, it was, it was like psychological torture, because I was watching all of these horrible things happen around me and felt like I couldn't do anything about it. And I couldn't leave. I did start drinking. And at a very young age, at 15, I started um, abusing alcohol as a way to cope with what I was experiencing. Are you able to share any of those things that you were witnessing going on around you during that time? Yeah, um, there's a lot from things like uh, stop pushing. So having staff members and other people buy courses and complete services in order to make it seem like the organization is doing better than it is to being sec checked and watching other kids being sec checked, which if uh, people don't know what that means, it's essentially being put in a room with an auditor on a meter and being asked very, very personal, very disturbing questions, primarily of a sexual nature. So at the age of 15 years old, myself and my friend both had to go through a very invasive uh, sec check of sexual questions at which they do not stop asking questions until a the desired result is achieved and all of your answers and all of the information that you provide is being written down by the auditor and put into your folder for anyone to read. They say that your uh, folder as a PC is private and I have learned over the years that that is absolutely not true. I know of people who were on staff in other places who brought up things that were only ever said in my auditing and my sec check sessions. So mm. it's basically just a form of blackmail. Um, and, you know, at the age of 15 to be in a room alone with an old man who's asking you sexual questions is really traumatizing, but not as traumatizing as later in my staff career, learning that that grown man um, had sexually gratified himself to the answers myself and my friend gave in those sex check mm. sessions. That is incredibly violating. And I'm so sorry you had to go through that. 
there's something similar in Mormonism, which are bishops' interviews where you're forced to go in and answer sexual questions. And that was actually the beginning of my exodus out of Mormonism. I was not having it. It's incredibly personal and, as I said, violating and gross and should never be permitted. And especially when the intent of it is to somehow criminalize you in some way. In my case, it was you're not worthy anymore or whatever label they want to put on it that makes you feel ashamed is so wrong. And I wish that all forms of that could stop immediately because it's it's just wrong. I mean, I don't really have any other way to put it. It's just wrong. Yeah, it is. It is incredibly wrong and violating. And also something that I talk to a lot of my friends about um, in terms of talking to their kids is a lot of things that we get blamed for aren't our fault. Um, for example, um, being preyed upon by older men on the internet. If I was talking to a child, I would explain to them, you've done nothing wrong. You are the victim of this situation and explain to them that there are people who are sick and have a problem and are, yeah. are, are finding them and victimizing them and teach them about safety. But instead it's, well, you're a kid and you created this situation and you can't do that. Don't do that. You shouldn't do that. And teaching children that something about them and something about what they're doing is wrong when um, why is, why are grown men fantasizing about and involving, involving children in sexual situations? Exactly. The, the point of focus has always been misdirected. Women are usually the ones that are blamed for their assault. Well, what were you wearing? How much did you have to drink? I mean, look at the Danny Masterson trial. It's infuriating. And for those who don't know, Danny Masterson is on trial right now. We're still waiting for the verdict to come out unless it already has by the time this airs because he was a Scientologist. He drugged and raped three women. And because of Scientology, his crimes have been hidden up and covered up. And it's just this huge mess, which we won't get into. But it just furthers my point, especially hearing you speak on this, Daisy, that this happens a lot. And the blame is shifted to the victim. The perpetrator never has to take accountability for it. And I'm just hoping that by speaking about this and allowing people to tell their stories, that we can shift the focus back where it belongs and show people where the real issues are. And also understanding that, as you were mentioning before, it's the systems that are creating these people. It's not even entirely the people's fault. Of course, if they are victimizing someone, they should take responsibility. And also looking at what the programming is that they're running on. And their programming as a Scientologist, being told that there are no such thing as children, and that once you're seven, you should be considered an adult. So why should there be consent boundaries? There's just so many problematic things going back to the systems and the creators of these systems that just need to be exploded and taken down. And I'm not trying to take down Scientology, but I wouldn't be mad if it was. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I, I did not learn anything about consent and boundaries, and that's something that I am very passionate about talking about now. And I'm so glad that you are. It's such an important topic and conversation. I want to get into what it was like for you leaving Scientology because I think you had mentioned to me off camera that you had to still pretend to stay in so you weren't disconnected from your parents. Can you walk us through what that was like? Yeah. Um, I think when I, when I first uh, left and I moved back to LA, I moved in temporarily with my family. Of course, I couldn't publicly state how I was feeling or my views. Soon after that, I did start having conversations with my parents in private about it, but they didn't want to accept it. They they always wanted to change my mind, convince me, and silence me. On top of that, the only job experience I had and the only connections I had were with 
you know, I worked for the church. So the only people that are going to take that as job experience when you're 18 years old are Scientology companies. So unfortunately, for the first few years of my adult life, I did work for Scientology companies and was in uh, friendships or community with other Scientologists that I'd grown up with or that I'd known in order to, you know, start building a nest egg, I don't know, in order to start having a leg to stand on for myself, because that was all I knew my whole life. I didn't really have friends who were out. I didn't, I didn't know how to be a person. I didn't really know how to take care of myself. I didn't know how to do a lot of the things that people are taught of, you know, when they move out of their family's houses. It took multiple years to break out of that, to find my own place where I wasn't living with Scientologists and to, to use their own words against them, good roads, good weather, and, and not express my true feelings, but also not involve myself in any services, slowly stopping being friends with certain people, trying to find skills and, and ways of making money and taking care of myself that didn't involve ties to Scientology to prove, you know, whether for employment or other purposes that I had this leg to stand on that wasn't involved. Um, and unfortunately, um, other than my dad's side of the family, all the rest of my family is still involved in Scientology, um, including I have family that's in the Sea Org. So um, essentially, all of them know how I feel and they just choose not to talk to me mm. about it. Are you worried about the repercussions that may happen after this interview goes public? Um, yeah. I mean, depending on who sees this, there is a possibility that there may be attempts to silence me, declare me, uh, to force my family into disconnecting. But I've spent 30 years um, holding this inside, and it has only caused me more harm and... I think that the worth that this might be to other people who are perhaps in similar situations or who are perhaps are questioning their situation and and need to hear from someone else that they're not alone is worth um, whatever repercussions there are, because I'm not making anything up. I'm not saying anything. Again, I, if, if anything, I am reducing my story to make it more palatable to, to make it so that people can hear this and believe this. Um, and if speaking my own truth for the sake of helping others causes my family or other people to disconnect from me, it would truly be horrible, but not as horrible as continuing to live in shame and silence. Wow. Incredible. Seriously, I have so much respect for you and what you're doing. It's so amazing that you're able to come on and share your story. And I think I've said it a million times, but thank you for doing that. If there's something that you could say to someone who may be watching, you know, your your person, the reason you were doing this, the person that you want to help that may be in a situation similar to your situation, what would you say to them? Is this the listen, Linda, art? <laughs> Not yet. Okay. Um, <laughs> we're, co we're almost there. <laughs> Trust your gut, trust your instinct, and if you need to go to the library or borrow someone's computer or do something to gain information that you might not have access to or you have been considering all of this and wondering for a long time, whether it's in Scientology or whether it's in another um, cult or organization, I urge you to try to start as soon as you can in not only investigating, but building, building blocks outside of what you know, because even if you start now, you know, you're giving yourself a opportunity to, to leave and it can take a while. It can take a while from the point where you start questioning to the point where you can actually leave but you can leave. You can have a life outside of what you've known. It will take time. It will take effort. It may be very painful, but I don't, I don't regret leaving. I 
am constantly reminded by myself and by others who know me now of how incredible it is not only that I survived that, but that I've become the compassionate person that I am despite the way that I was raised. Yeah, that's beautiful advice. And I stand behind that 100%. Are there any things, tangible things that you could recommend that that have helped you move on through the process? You've mentioned therapy, which is amazing. Is there anything else that you've found that's helped you really release some of these traumas and, and find yourself and build a life? Therapy, definitely. Different forms of, of Chinese medicine, acupuncture and somatic exercises have been incredibly helpful to me personally. That might be woo-woo to some people, but there are absolutely proven benefits and I experience a lot of relief from that. You know, now in, cer- in certain areas, um, the use of psychedelics and psychedelic therapy is legalized. So if that's something that's legal where you live, I recommend looking into it. Other than that, I think if you have a skill or you can build a skill that is can can bring you some sort of income, I think focusing some of your energy on that just so that, you, like I said, you can start to build a leg for you to stand on. Um, I personally um, started writing from a really young age, so I learned that that was a skill I could use um, to make money in a lot of different ways and has been the primary source of my income since um, since I left. That's so great. Yeah. I love that. I love that so much. You're able, I mean, writing is so cathartic, right? Just getting everything out on a piece of paper and being able to look at it and go, okay, yeah, now it's out of my head. Now I can really analyze what's going on. Journaling is such a helpful thing too. So I would love to get your Linda Lisa moment, your sassy statement towards someone who's pushed you off or some inspiration. Linda, listen, it is not your fault. You did not ask for this. And you can escape the situation that you're in. Yes. I love it. So good. Just to the point. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for sharing, Daisy. Your story is very inspirational. Just everything that you've had to gone through, go through and how you've come out on the other side. You seem very well adjusted and you're incredibly well spoken. And I'm just so happy that you chose to share your story with me and with the viewers and listeners here. And do you have any final thoughts before we go? No, I just appreciate you so much. And not only what you're doing, but that knowing that you've come from something even remotely similar, and this is what you've chosen to do with your time and energy and platform. I, I have a lot of love and grace for you. So thank you. Oh, thank you so much. I appreciate that. Thank you so much again. I I think I've said thank you a, a bajillion times, but I mean it. And to anyone who wants to support the podcast, you can become a patron, patreon.com slash cults to consciousness. And if you enjoyed this episode, you will most likely enjoy the episode that we did with Kelly Copter. I'll link that here if you're interested in watching that. And Danny as well. I'll add that to the end screen. And until next time, follow your highest excitement, be conscious, and be well. Thanks for listening. If you like what you hear, it would mean a lot if you could like and subscribe on YouTube and leave a review or a comment to help with our visibility. You can also find me on social media at Colts to Consciousness or reach out by email at Colts to Consciousness at gmail.com.